an oxymoron can be defined as combining contradictory terms. It's the idea of putting together contradictory terms that harmoniously flow with each other. A few basic examples of oxymorons would be jumbo shrimp, icy hot, sweet and sour, deafening silence. I tried to come up with some of my own oxymorons from my own life. And I came up with some. My quiet children. My gentle children. My perfect children. Okay, I got to move to a different subject. I'm getting too focused. Um, I'm a slow speed reader. Or I like healthy French fries at the restaurant. Or I'm a tall five, five and a half. Or, I'm a strong man. But I also found a few oxymorons online that was worth sharing as well. Always be sincere, even when you don't mean it. Live within your income, even if you have to borrow to do so. We must believe in free will. We have no choice. It usually takes about three weeks to prepare a good impromptu speech. The best cure for insomnia is to get good sleep. I always avoid a prophesying beforehand because it is much better to prophesy after the event already has happened. I never said most of the things that I've said. Well, Scripture also gives us a variety of oxymorons, too. Many truths that at face value seem almost contradictory in nature. Christ says to live, you must die, right? To be first, you have to become last, right? We suffer to find joy. Happy are the sad. And in our passages this morning, we're going to explore some of the oxymorons found in John 9. So let's open our Bibles to John Chapter 9, and we're going to go through the whole section this morning. And this is where Jesus heals the blind man. And I've entitled this sermon, Things Aren't Always As They Seem. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you for this morning. Just in awe of just worshiping corporately, Father just such a blessing to come together and be spiritually recharged as we start our week, Father. We're so blessed. Thank you so much. In Christ's name, amen. Well, John 9, 1 starts by saying this. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So as we mentioned this section last week, the disciples asked Jesus why this man was born blind in the first place. And they boil it down to just two options, right? Either this man sinned or his parents. 
And Jesus blows both of the disciples' man-centered theories out of the water. And he says the man was born blind to magnify God. The, God is the reason for this man's blindness. God had a plan from the beginning. The many years of suffering. The continued darkness. The years of hardship. The seemingly wasted years had a very poignant purpose. For God to be glorified and to work a miracle in this man's life. Which leads to oxymoron number one. Suffering is good medicine for the soul. Oxymoron number one says that suffering is good medicine for the soul. We think of, of laughter being good medicine for the soul, but biblically we find out that suffering is good for us. Often we're sick and we have to take some type of medication or medicine that often tastes horrible or it makes us feel bad. We often become nauseated or it makes us drowsy or weak, but in the end it deals with the real culprit. It kills the germ or the disease that's the root problem in us. The medication has a greater purpose. It often leads to momentary misery before we see the results of feeling better, right? Well, suffering is sort of like medicine. We don't like it because suffering causes struggle, right? Suffering is painful. Suffering brings about sorrow in our life. Suffering causes us to go through the fires of agony. But suffering has a greater, more significant purpose. We're reminded by our passage this morning that God is in the midst of our suffering. It wasn't that he only knew the blind man's suffering, but it, he caused it. He allowed it for his glory and the man's benefit. Paul says in Romans 8, 16 and 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here we see that if we are God's, we will suffer. It's not a question of if, but when. But we can take heart because Paul says our suffering is not pointless. It's not meaningless. We see that our suffering is for a greater purpose, a greater cause. It leads to shaping and molding us for the next life. This morning, we may be suffering. We may be facing various tribals, but do we recognize that suffering as children of God is part of the plan? Suffering leads us to a deeper, more sure foundation in Christ. Do we see our suffering is shaping us for heaven, preparing us to be a better servant of Christ today? But let's continue on. And we're now in John 9, 6. John 9, 6. And it says this, Having said these things, he spit on the ground, that's Jesus, and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus heals the blind man, and this could be another contradiction, another oxymoron, as Christ puts mud on the man's eyes as part of the cure. John Calvin says, 
Christ doubles this man's blindness by putting mud on his already blind eyes. I mean, who would put mud on their face for healing purposes? And then I realized women do this all the time. (laughs) What's the reason? Well, let me start by saying I'm really not an expert in this field. It's sort of uncharted territory for me right now. So if I'm wrong about why women put mud on their face, then forgive me beforehand because I'm really not an expert on the subject, right? But I think it's to cleanse or beautify their skin. But I assure everyone that the mud women use isn't average mud. No, it's not average mud. It's not run-of-the-mill mud, but a special mud, a therapeutic mud, right? With healing properties, right? So this really isn't anything much to our sermon, but we can see that Jesus used mud. Our women use mud. So maybe some of us men should try mud as well, right? Or maybe not. But let's jump in in John 9, 8, and it says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it just looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus. So the blind man becomes the talk of the town. He is the center of attention, and probably is the first time that he was the main focus. Some believed he was healed, while others were saying, no, this isn't the beggar. He just sort of looks like him. And the scripture says the blind man's like, hey, yes, it's me. I am the man, right? But an important question that we need to ponder is how did this beggar come in contact with Christ in the first place? I mean, did the man seek out Christ? Did the beggar get his friends to find Christ? Did his, this man's parents go and pursue Jesus? Well, verse 1 tells us it was Christ that actually found him. Why did Christ pick out this guy instead of someone else? I mean, for Christ to choose this man, this guy must have been extraordinary. He must have been someone special. I mean, maybe he was an affluent businessman. Or maybe he was a very religious man with lots of faith. Or maybe he was just an upright citizen in the community. Well, we know none of these describe our man, right? Because it says that he was a poor, blind beggar right? So his plight in life was very bleak. He didn't have anything going for him. He wouldn't be described as a rising star or a future leader or the next generational influencer, right? Which leads to oxymoron number two. God pursues the blind. Oxymoron number two says that God pursues the blind. You may be thinking that's good that God loves blind people too, right? I mean, they already have such a disadvantage. I mean, they can't see anything for crying out loud. They've never seen a sunrise. They've never seen a Marco sunset. They've never been to the beach. Not really been to the beach, but they can't see it, right? They haven't even seen their own loved ones. All they see 
is continued perpetual darkness. But Scripture, frankly, shows us that Christ is focused on another sort of blindness, a more serious, a more insidious blindness, a blindness that has far worse consequences than physical blindness. You may be thinking, what other type of blindness is there? What other type of blindness can be worse than being physically born blind? And the answer, of course, is spiritual blindness. A spiritual darkness that does not blind our ability to see physically, but spiritually. The spiritual blind man says, I don't need God. I can figure out life on my own. The spiritual blind man says, I am good without God. The spiritual blind man says, it's a crutch to believe in a God. This blindness was caused by the fall of humanity as we all start out spiritually blind from birth, Scripture teaches. Like the blind man, we couldn't see Jesus either. So he pursued us and he found us. And it's not because we deserved it or we are innocent or better than others. As Scripture says, we are all like sheep have gone astray. All have gone his own way. And Nick stole my verse in Romans this morning. But Romans says, none is righteous, no, not one. But the question still remains, then, then why did Christ go to this blind man over others? Well, we find out in verse 3. Let's go back to verse 3, the last part of John 9, verse 3. Jesus says that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it wasn't a random act of kindness on Jesus' part, but a plan by the Father act of kindness as Jesus went to the man to glorify his Father. We have to remember that Jesus didn't do anything by happenstance. Christ acted on his Father's will. He only did what his Father told him to do. He was under the authority of his Father every moment of the day. John 6, 38 and 39 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I wonder if we realize it was the Father's will for us to be saved. We were in utter darkness as we were spiritually dead, And Christ found us because it was in the will of the Father. Amen? But let's move on to John 9, 13, which says, They brought brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, rejected Christ. I mean, that should be mind-boggling to us because they memorized the first five books of the law. They were experts in the Old Testament, and yet they didn't see how Christ was fulfilling it right in front of their eyes. What we see is that knowledge of the Bible does not always equal faith in God. Which leads to oxymoron number three. 
Learning truths about God doesn't equal having a relationship with God. Let me say that again. Learning truths about God doesn't equal having a relationship with God. And I tread on this lightly as we are in a culture that tends to disdain deep study. It's almost prided on for not being a reader or being someone who dives down into theology and study the deep truths of God's word. So let me stay up front If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, we need to live and breathe God's word. It must be a book that we live in. And sometimes, just sometimes, we take our head out of the Bible to possibly get a drink or possibly eat something or even maybe take a nap. But learning God's word must be the believer's priority, main priority, paramount to us as believers of Christ. But in the case of the Pharisees, they lived in God's word, but for very wrong and twisted purposes. Matthew 23, 2 through 5 says, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others. We see the religious leaders abuse their power and ignored the very teachings they taught. I think we got the saying, do what I say, not as I do, from the Pharisees. The question we should ask ourselves is, why do we spend time in God's Word? What motivates us to have a quiet time or deep study in Scripture. Corinthians tells us love builds up while knowledge puffs up. Love looks to others while knowledge without love looks to self. Do we spend time in God's Word just to get knowledge for self? Or do we read God's Word to love others and glorify God? For example, some people read God's word to receive favor or blessings from him. Almost if the day will go better, God will work out life if we just spend time in his word. My business deals will run smoother. Or my athletics, I'll do better in my athletic games. Or God will get us safely to our destinations. Or God will promote me in my job as long as I'm doing my part. It's the idea that I listen to him, and he gives me what I want. It's a great deal. My obedience equals God being more sensitive to what I want and what I need. The problem is God knows our motives, church. He knows why we do what we do. If I read scripture to get something from him, he sees my heart. He recognizes when I'm trying to use him instead of worship him. Another example that is a little more subtle is to look at the Bible as a self-help manual. I'm really struggling with depression, and I need some relief, so I start looking up every verse that relates to depression. Some people look at God like Dr. Phil, who is there to take care of whatever need or want they have. It's reading God's Word with me, with self at the center instead of Christ. Similar to the Pharisees who use the word of God to promote themselves instead of praise God. 
May we reflect in our quiet times, in our devotions, to examine our motives for why we read the Word of God. It's important, church. But let's move on. And we're in John 9, 18. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but he now sees and we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask, he is of age, he will speak of himself. So the Pharisees go to the parents to set the record straight, to find out if their son was actually born blind. And it tells us, up to this point, the Pharisees didn't even believe the man was actually blind. And the parents, as we see, act very unmoved, unemotional about the fact their son was blind, and now he can see. They don't burst out and praise to God. They don't get on the the Pharisees for their lack of faith. Instead, they are somewhat evasive about the whole matter altogether. And then we find out why, sadly, in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. The parents are more fearful of the Pharisees than of God. They are worried about being kicked out of the synagogue. I mean, they like going to synagogue, right? And they like their good reputation around town. And all of a sudden, their son now has jeopardized their own reputation. Which leads to oxymoron number three. Fearing people more than fearing God. Fearing people more than fearing God. And we we may think that fearing people is an anomaly, but in reality, it is a struggle for most of us. Ed Welch, a leading biblical counselor, says, fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. Here's some of the thoughts we have when we struggle with the fear of man. What if someone thinks I'm mean? Or what if they think I'm not smart enough? Or what if they think my kids are out of control? Or what if they think I'm not spiritual enough? Or what if people don't think I am good enough? Or what if people think I'm too direct? Or what if people think I'm too indirect? What if people think I'm fat? What if people think I'm too skinny? What if people think I fear man? And on and on and on the list goes. But I must say that most of us probably don't consider the fear of man as being that big of a deal. I mean, it might even be somewhat innocent to us. Yet scripture tells us that it has detrimental effects on our lives and our relationship with the Lord. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. Proverbs says it's being trapped. It's being imprisoned. It's living in bondage. The question is why? Why is the fear of man such a big deal? 
Well, people-pleasing, fear of man, takes our focus, our love, our worship, our devotion, our desire off of God and replaces it with people. Dave Harvey says, however you put it, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We replace God with people. Instead of biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. People become big to us while God becomes small. In a sense, we try to take God's glory away and give it to his creation people. The question is, whose approval are we after this morning? Who are we trying to please? Is it God? Or is it somebody else? Are we living for our spouse's approval? Or maybe we're living for our parents' approval. Or our children's approval. Or our friends' approval. Or maybe even our church family's approval. So the question is, how can we stop being enslaved to people-pleasing? Let me just give us four quick steps. These aren't thorough, but they're at least something to begin with. Step number one. Recognize people-pleasing is a sin recognize that people-pleasing is a sin. We have to call a spade a spade. We shouldn't try to lessen our bad behaviors and actions by calling our sin everything else but what it really is, sin. We often say things like, Lord, forgive me for all my problems and issues. Or, Lord, forgive me for my weaknesses, Lord. Or, Lord, please forgive me for my brokenness. Or, I love this one, Lord, forgive me for my shortcomings. Right? Let's call people-pleasing what it is. It's sin. Step number two, confess the sin of people-pleasing. Step number two says to confess the sin of people-pleasing. Now that we've named people-pleasing a sin, it's important to confess it. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Step number three. Repent of the sin of people-pleasing. Repent of the sin of people-pleasing. Often we hear a sermon on sinful struggle that we have in our lives. We make statements like, I'm going to work on it. I vow today that I'm going to do better for now on. But let me ask us, who are we focused on when we say things like that? And of course, the answer is self. We act like we can change ourselves. We put ourselves in position of God. Scripture teaches that we can't make ourselves stop fearing others. This is a heart issue, and we can't change our own heart. That is called the work of the Holy Spirit. Scripture commands that we turn to God and turn away from our sin, which is called repentance. And so we repent of people-pleasing, and God is the one who then changes our hearts, right? Amen? Step number four, study the attributes of God. Step number four says to study the attributes of God. Often the problem is we have a very small view of God. We really don't see God who he really is. Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fearing God really often does not make sense 
to many of us because the problem lies in the fact that many churches have overemphasized certain attributes of God like his love and his kindness and without talking about his holiness, right? And as we start studying the character, the attributes of God, we begin to see a clearer, a bigger, a more accurate view of who God really is. And with the right perspective of God, naturally comes right worship of God as well. We become more zealous for living for him. We recognize that we can't sin against our God in the way of people pleasing any longer. We have more love, more reverence, more desire, more fear of God. Having a larger or correct view of God is the remedy for people-pleasing. I wonder if we struggle with the fear of man this morning. Are we desperate to get approval from others? Are we trying to make everyone like us? Do we struggle with issues like low self-esteem or insecurities? Are we easily embarrassed? If so, we struggle with people-pleasing. The next question is, have you, been, have you seen people-pleasing as an actual sin? And finally, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to just try harder, work in our own strength? Are we going to actually repent and let God change our hearts? Well, let's go back to John. And for time's sake... I think I only have almost 20 verses left to go through, and I think we're already over time. So we're just going to sort of cram the rest of it together here. And here, here's, this is what it says. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you are born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. A great verse for our Jehovah Witnesses, right? He worshipped Christ. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, and that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So the Pharisees meet with the guy again, trying to force the man to say that Jesus really isn't the Son of God and he's some sort of fraud, but the man won't have any of it. This one's blind man becomes courageous as he stands up to the Pharisees' bullying and their intimidation. He does not give in to the fear of man like his parents as he just sticks to the facts. Jesus finds the man again. And the man puts his faith in Christ. Amen? 
And we rejoice. We think, what a great story. What a blessing. I mean, this guy gains his sight and becomes a believer, a child of God. And we think, man, this story can't get any better than this, right? But we know that the influential leaders of this town have this man now on his blacklist, right? On their blacklist because he humiliated them in front of the group. So we can be confident that this guy will now officially be kicked out of the synagogue, right? He is now a believer in Christ. This man's life won't be easy going forward. He goes from being a blind beggar to possibly being a seeing outcast in his own town. Standing for Christ does not usually lead to worldly blessings. It does not usually lead to popularity or status, which leads to oxymoron number four. The faithful will face hardships. Oxymoron number four says that the faithful will face hardships. That really sounds wrong because many have believed in what is known as the prosperity gospel, which says God wants me to be happy, wealthy, and healthy, right? The prosperity gospel isn't about following Christ, but getting what we want. It feeds the flesh. It plays on the selfishness of our own heart. This false teaching acts like Jesus is Lord, but in reality, Jesus is just a means of getting what I want selfishly. I mean, who wouldn't want to follow God that promises he will give me more power, that he will give me more riches, that he will give me a bigger house, that he will give me a car, and if I have extra faith, he might even give me two cars. I just trust Christ and send a check of $50 or more, and God might even make my children angels. But Scripture tells us a different story. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Philippians 1.29 says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you will also suffer for his sake. Acts 14.22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Scripture says that following Christ means we will face troubles, trials, persecutions, and sorrows. If you aren't suffering yet, I can be confident that you will suffer. It's coming. It's coming to all of us. And that means we shouldn't worry or fret, though, because as we talked about last week, James says what? To count it all joy, right? Rejoice, because we can be excited about the sufferings that we face Because we recognize they're under God's sovereign control, right? As suffering is for our good. God uses our suffering to spread Christ. God uses suffering to test us, to reprove us. Suffering makes our joy to be found in Christ instead of this world. Suffering is what our Lord faced, and we can enthusiastically face hardships knowing we are following our Lord and Savior. Amen? I would encourage you to watch last week's sermon on suffering if you're really struggling to see God in the midst of what you're going through right now. The whole sermon was dedicated to that very subject. Well, this morning, we've explored the oxymorons found in John 9. But when we think 
of an oxymoron found in Scripture, when we think of the uh, truths that seem like, the, like a total contradiction, that is amazing. Well, the greatest one, of course, is the fact that God loves us, that God loves sinners like us. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe we should be in awe of such grace that we have received. God sacrificed his son for us. What love, what grace, what an amazing reality, amen? Let's take this message to Marco Island, Naples, and to the ends of the earth. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We're in awe of what you've done. Father, help us to have a big view of you. Help us to recognize that in all of life, you're involved. You're not just involved in our blessings, but you're involved in our sufferings, which are blessings that we often can't see. Help us not to give too much credit to the Satan, but to recognize that you have everything under your control, even Satan. Help us to be faithful and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Walk in holiness, walk in repentance, be in awe of your grace. Thank you for your son, in Christ's name, amen.